Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome, good evening. Thank you for joining us for this series of Club Book. Uh, welcome to Club Book tonight with Claire Lombardo. My name is Kaylin Creason. I'm gonna be your moderator tonight and I am a librarian with Washington County Library, co-host of tonight's event. Before I introduce Claire properly, allow me to take a moment to tell you a little bit more about this unique series, which I'm sure many of you have joined us for before. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Washington County Library is the organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, Claire Lombardo is one of the few first-time authors to see their debut novel chart immediately on the New York Times bestseller list. The most fun we ever had follows the fortunes and factious relationships of four sisters over five decades. In this time-jumping narrative, the surprise re-emergence of a teenage son put up for adoption by one sister sparks a long overdue family reckoning. NPR praised Lombardo's debut as a wonderfully immersive read that packs more heart and heft than most first novels, and a deliciously absorbing novel with Brace Yourself, a tender and satisfyingly positive take on family. The Chicago Tribune, People Magazine, and Good Housekeeping are among the many who singled out the most fun we ever had as one of the best books of 2019. Random House will release a paperback edition on April 6th, and the book is currently being adapted for HBO by the powerhouse Hollywood producing duo of Amy Adams and Laura Dern. After a short presentation by Claire, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Some questions have been sent in advance, and we'll also be taking some live questions. So please just drop those in the comment thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will send them to me. Uh, you can also ask anonymous questions if you want uh, by sending a private message to Club Book on Facebook or an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So lots of ways to get your questions in. We're excited for a good night of Q&A. All right, so Claire, I think, are you ready to start with a short reading from your book? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight, if you did. Um, I thought I would read a little bit from just, I'm actually going to read the prologue of the novel. So if you haven't read it, uh, you don't need to know anything. Um, I also was just saying I got our brand new paperbacks in the mail today, which is sort of exciting. Um, so I'll read a little bit and then happily take your questions. Um, all right. Other people overwhelmed her. Strange, perhaps, for a woman who'd added four beings to the universe of her own reluctant volition, but a fact nonetheless. Marilyn rued the inconvenient presence of bodies, bodies beyond her control, her understanding, bodies beyond her favor. She rued them now from her shielded spot beneath the ginkgo tree where she was hiding from her guests. She'd always had that knack for entertaining, but it drained her fully time and time again, decades of her father's wealthy clients and her husband's humorless colleagues, of her children's temperamental friends, uh, of her transitory neighbors and ever-shifting roster of customers. And yet today, a hundred odd near strangers in her backyard, humans in motion, staying in motion, formally clad, tipsy celebrants of the union of her eldest daughter, Wendy, People who were her responsibility for this evening when she already had so much on her plate, not literally for she'd neglected to take advantage of the farm fresh menu spread over three extra long card tables, but elementally four girls for whose presences she was biologically and socially responsible, polka dotting the lawn in their summer pastels. The fruits of her womb implanted repeatedly by the sweetness of her husband who was currently nowhere to be found. She had fallen into motherhood without intent, producing a series of daughters with varying shades of hair and varying degrees of unease. She, Marilyn Sorensen, nay Connolly, a resilient pr product of money and tragedy from dubious socio-emotional Irish Catholic lineage, but now for all intents and purposes, as functional as they come, an admirably natural head of dirty blonde hair, marginally conversant in both literary criticism and the lives of her children. Uh, wearing a fitted forest green sheath that exposed the athletic curve of her calves and the freckled landscape of her shoulders. People kept referring to her with great drama as the mother of the bride, and she was trying to act the part, trying to pretend that she wasn't focused almost exclusively on the well-being of her children, none of whom that particular evening seemed to be thriving. Maybe normalcy skipped a generation like baldness, Violet, her second born, a striking brunette in silk chiffon, had uncharacteristically reeked of booze since breakfast. Wendy was always a cause for concern despite seeming less beleaguered uh, today, owing either to the fact that she'd just married a man who had bank accounts in the Caymans or to the fact that this man was, as she vocally professed, the love of her life. And Grace and Liza, nine years apart, but both maladjusted, the former a shy, stunted, soon-to-be second grader, and the latter about to friendlessly finish her sophomore year of high school. How could you grow people inside your own body, sprout them from your own extant materials, and suddenly be unable to recognize them? Normalcy, it bore a second look, sociologically speaking. Gracie had found her beneath the ginkgo. Her youngest was almost seven, an insufferable age, eons from leaving the household, still childish enough that she tried to slip into their bed in the middle of the previous night, which wouldn't have been that big of a deal had her parents been clothed at the time. Anxiety did something to Marilyn always had, drew her magnetically to the animal comfort of her husband. Sweetheart, why don't you go find, she hesitated. The only other children at the wedding were toddlers, and she didn't specifically want to encourage Grace's already burgeoning antisocial love of dogs by suggesting that she go play with Goethe, 
but she wanted a moment to herself, just a few seconds to breathe in the cooling air of early spring. Go find daddy, love. I can't find him, Grace said, the hint of a baby voice blunting her vowels. Well, look harder. She bent to kiss her daughter's hair. I need a minute, Goose. Grace moved off. <clears throat> uh, she had already checked on Wendy, already swung on the porch swing with Liza until her sister had been distracted by a boy wearing sneakers with his wedding suit, already convinced Violet to share four sips of champagne from her fancy glass flute. She was out of people to check on. It was strange to have to share her parents with others this weekend to have her sisters back around the house on Fair Oaks. Her father sometimes called her the only, only child in the world who has three sisters. She resented slightly her sisters homing in on her territory. She soothed herself as she always did with the company of Goethe, curling up with him beneath the purple flower, uh, the purple flower bushes and running her hand through his bristly fur, the part of his butt that looked like it had been permed. Liza felt a little bad seeing her younger sister finding solace in the dog while she herself was finding solace inside a stranger's mouth, but the groomsman emanated a smoky vapor of whiskey and arugula and he was doing something with his fingers to the inside of her thigh that made her turn her head away, deciding that Grace could fend for herself, that it wasn't possible to learn that skill too early. Tell me about you, the groomsman said, his knuckles grazing the lacy insignificance of the thong she'd worn in the hopes of such an, exactly such an occasion. What do you want to know, she asked. It came out sounding kind of hostile. She'd not yet mastered being flirtatious. There's four of you, he asked. What's that like? It's a vast hormonal hellscape, a marathon of instability and hair products. He smiled, confused, and she leaned forward boldly and kissed him. Violet had never been quite so drunk, sitting slumped alone at one of the tables from which she supposed she'd driven the other guests. The previous night came to her in fizzy, episodic sunbursts, the bar that used to be a bowling alley, her blue-eyed companion with his double-jointed elbows, the athletic clasp of his thighs, the back of his mother's station wagon. Uh, I'm going to skip some of this because this is a library. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, she watched Wendy. <laughs> wearing you don't have censorship, Claire. It's fine. Oh. <laughs> oh. You can do whatever you are comfortable. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Now that I've drawn attention to it, um, uh, how she'd made him drop her uh, made him drop her a block away from her parents' house, lest Wendy still be awake. She watched Wendy wearing sweetheart net Gucci at her backyard wedding to an old money academic, being spun in circles by her new husband to you can't hurry love. Her sister had, for the first time, surpassed her success-wise. She was blithe and beautiful and twirling in circles while Violet was drunk past the point of physical comfort, gnawing at a full loaf of catered focaccia, rubbing the oil on the underside of her skirt. But she felt herself smiling a little at Wendy, at oblivious Wendy getting grass stains on her satin train. Imagine going over to her sister and whispering in her ear, you'd die if you knew where I was last night. Wendy watched as Miles, throwing an apologetic smile at her over his shoulder, was pulled away from her by his toddler cousin, their ring bearer, who had solicited her his accompaniment to the cake table. There's some good daddy training happening over there, someone said, taking her by the elbow. It was a guest from Miles' side, possibly someone's real estate broker, a silicon goblin of a woman. The people on the lawn at present were probably collectively worth more than the GDP of a mid-sized country. It's good you're so young, plenty of time to flesh out the family tree. It seemed a crass thing to say for a variety of reasons, so Wendy responded in kind. Who says I want to split up my share among a bunch of kids? 
The woman looked horrified, but Wendy and Miles lived for these jokes, were allowed to make these jokes because neither of them cared if people thought Wendy was a gold digger. All that mattered was what they knew to be true, which was that she'd never loved another person as fiercely as she did Miles Eisenberg. And he, by some grand cosmic miracle, loved her back. She was an Eisenberg now, in the top 30 at least of the wealthiest families in Chicago. She could mess with whomever she wanted. It's my plan to outlive everyone and spend my days reveling in a disgusting level of opulence, she said. And she rose from her seat and went to straighten her new husband's tie. The trees, David noted, were burgeoning that day, big prodigious leaves making dancing shadows across the grass, which they tried to keep the dog off of for the sake of aesthetic preservation. David and Marilyn rising early in the mornings and pulling on raincoats over their pajamas to walk in instead of just opening the back door like they normally did. He watched as the rented tables and chairs wore their grooves into the pristine lawn, legs melon-balling the expensively fertilized sod in a way that made his gut churn. Goethe was now roaming around the yard like a recently released convict, traversing the verdant grounds with the proprietary confidence of a horticulturalist. David took a breath of damp air. Was rain coming? It might make the guests leave sooner and marveled over the sheer number of people that could accumulate in a lifetime, the number of faces in his yard that he didn't recognize. He thought of Wendy as a toddler when they lived in Iowa, creeping onto the porch where he and Marilyn rocked together in the rickety cedar swing, fitting herself neatly between them and murmuring, already drifting back to sleep, you're my friends. He was nearly overcome standing there, feeling as out of place as he had a quarter of a century ago before they'd married, a chilly December night when Marilyn had lain against his chest beneath the ginkgo. He did a visual sweep, eyes blurring the sea of pale spring colors until he found his wife, a tiny ballast of forest green, hiding beneath that very same ginkgo. He slipped along the fence until he came to her and reached out an imploring hand to the small of her back. She leaned instinctively into it. Come with me, he said, and led her around the trunk into the shade where he pulled her into him and buried his face in her hair. Sweetheart, she said, worried, what is it? He pressed his face into the crook of her neck, breathing in the faint dry warmth of her scent, lilacs and Irish spring. I missed you, he said into her clavicle. Oh, love. She tightened her embrace, tilted his chin until he met her eyes. He kissed her mouth and then her cheekbone and her forehead and the inlet of her jaw where he could feel her pulse and then her mouth again. She was smiling, lips a flushed, feverish plum, and then she was kissing him back, the periphery blurring away. The thing that would always mean more than everything else, the goldish warmth of his wife, the heat of their mutual desperation. Two bodies finding solace in the only, only way they knew how. Through the language of lips, his hands along her spine, her spine against the tree trunk, the resultant quiet that occurred when they came together until she pulled away, smiled up at him and said, just don't let the girls catch us, before she buried herself once again against him. But of course they saw, all four of the girls watched their parents from disparate vantage points across the lawn, each alerted initially to their absence from the reception by that pull, a vestigial holdover from childhood, seeking the cognitive comfort that came from the knowing, the geolocation, the proximity of those who'd created you, those who would always feel beholden to you no matter what. Each of their four daughters paused what she was doing in order to watch them, the shining unfathomable orb of their parents, two people who emanated more love than it seemed like the universe would sanction. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. That it was, that's, it's beautiful. Your writing is beautiful. Well, <laughs> it's no wonder it ended up on the New York Times bestselling list. Although as a debut author, what an amazing thing. Like that's, that must've been quite a day. 
It was quite a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> it is still quite a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, one thing, so for people listening who maybe haven't read all of the book, although they just got a great taste from the prologue, there's the four sisters, two parents, and then of course, Jonah who comes in and then all the other satellite characters. And one question I had while reading the book in all of its beautiful detail is how did you not live the lives of all these people? Like, <laughs> it's so beautifully nuanced and you get into so many characters' heads. How do you do it? Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, I make the joke frequently that maybe I'm just a sociopath. That is possibly how, <laughs> how that, that came to be. Um, but I think, you know, to some degree, I did live the lives of each of these characters because I spent so much time with them. Um, I spent... And this answer changes every time I give it, around five years writing this book. Um, and so much of that work was just sitting down and immersing myself in you know, any, any given head on any given day. Um, and so it really became just like a series of little relation, big relationships I was building. Um, and some characters were harder to get to know than others, but um, it really was you know, just kind of an exercise in, in both time and empathy, trying to just, imagine what it would feel like to be someone who's not me, which is what being a writer is to me uh, for the for the most part, yeah. Amazing, that, what, that totally ties in with a question we got from one of our audience members, which is, and they say, if it's not too personal to ask, do you yourself come from a large family and is any of this autobiographical in nature or what did you draw from in your own life to create these realistic people? Sure. Yeah, that's not too personal question. Um, I do come from a large family and no, this is not an autobiographical novel. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure you get asked all the time. I do. I do. And it's, you know, I kind of, um, I broke the cardinal rule that I teach my students, which is that you should change every possible detail in a story or a novel that resembles your own life. Um, if you can change it without sacrificing, you know, the the um, integrity of the story. And uh, I went then and wrote a novel with a family structure that looks very much like my own family of origin in the town where I grew up. Um, so I am inviting those questions, I realize. Um, so I, I do come from a large family. Um, this is not an autobiographical novel in plot remotely. There is nothing that plot-wise resembles my own life or the life of my family. Um, but I was very heavily, heavily influenced. I am heavily influenced as a writer by the role that I had in my family growing up, um, which was that of an observer. I'm very, you know, I, I was a very quiet kid. I was fascinated by my siblings. I still am. Um, and I think that part of me sort of just kept growing and growing and has blossomed into, you know, the, the adult that I am now, who is just I mean, very nosy, that's another way of putting it, I guess, but um, who's just really interested in other people and what's going on sort of behind behind closed doors. Um, and so that's kind of one of my pursuits as a fiction writer is just trying to, you know, look as closely as I can at, at real life um, and render it as, as realistically as possible. So that was, you know, that was my, my intention with this novel. I really wanted readers to feel like sometimes claustrophobically, like they lived in this house with this family. Um, so that's, you know, my, my, my twofold yes and no answer. Yeah. It's <laughs> a great answer. And I, I that's, 
claustrophobia. That's such an interesting word that you use to describe it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. I, a friend of mine read a really early draft of this. He didn't even read the whole thing. He just read like 50 pages of it or something. And uh, he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm into this book, but I kind of wanted to like get it away from me when I was done. Like, you know, he like, you know, you feel like you're sort of seeing things that you shouldn't be seeing or, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, how I often feel in spaces with other people. But um, I did want to sort of replicate that sensation of family life is often overwhelming and uncomfortable and um, claustrophobic. So yeah, it's not not my word, but yes, I, I will happily borrow it. I think that's fantastic. And I think it speaks to these very tight binds of family that you write too. these connections that are sometimes close, but fraught, but always present. Um, and it totally ties into a question someone else asked about Marilyn and Dave, the, the married couple, the parents, mm -hmm. um, people listening in. Um, so this person, their book club read the most fun we ever had. So I hope the book club is listening. And they commented at length about how the sisters see their parents, um, which you describe as two people who emanated more love than it seemed like the universe would sanction from the prologue. So. Um, then they said, the book club adds that flashbacks make it clear the siblings don't know the whole story. Did you find that kind of relationship true to life? What, you know, how did the parents bond and the siblings bond? How did it all come together? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, one thing, one sort of like big capital I idea that I was interested in with this novel was perception versus reality. Um, and how, you know, you will never, ever, ever know the nuance or the, you know, specificity or the sort of nitty gritty of another person's relationship. You will often not know all of those things in your own relationships. Um, I mean, all of them in, in totality. Um, so I, I really wanted to play with that. I wanted to play with the notion, which also feels very true to any family, but large families in particular, which is that you can take any entity or moment and everyone in the family is going to view it differently or have a different memory of it. Um, in this case, the four Sorensen daughters all have kind of a homogenous view of their parents, which is that they're perfect and they're impervious and everything came really easily to them. Um, and then I got to do the really fun work of going into the past, which is why I love I love flashback and fiction, going into the past and actually sort of unearthing like, no, this was not anything close to perfect, um, nor is anything, um, which is ultimately, you know, what everyone in this book ends up ends up learning, um, but I did really want to play with that. You know, what do we look like outwardly versus what's actually going on internally? Um, what is you know how how does a marriage present versus you know what does that marriage look like when everyone is gone and you're just alone in a room together? So um, that was something that I you know throughout this this whole book I had a lot of even just voyeuristic sort of joy learning about um, as I as I was writing these characters. That's, that's really amazing. Um, and it, gosh, that another, um, speaking of writing of like emotion and connection, we did have a question of what was the most emotional scene or plot line for you to write? Ooh. Um, 
That's a good question. So uh, I was talking to my mom earlier about how whenever someone asks me a question, I say, that's a really good question. And now I'm like very conscious of myself doing it. Um, so just someone can start like a drinking game or something. Every time. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Not library sanctioned. Uh, right, right. Sorry. Yes. Uh, water drinking. Yeah. You're at home. <laughs> do, do you, as they say. Anyway, um, yes, but Yes. Yeah, so difficult, you know, without spoiling anything, there's one, well, I'll speak generally to not spoil anything. There's these characters go through a number of difficult circumstances, none that are, you know, remarkably over the, you know, there, there's no war or family, there's no like, you know, great, great grand scale tragedies, but um, there's very, very, very terrible things that happen to people that happen to, you know, all of us. Um, and that was really difficult. Those were really difficult things to explore fictionally and to inflict on these people that I had created. Um, it feels sort of, you know, sort of cruel. Um, and so I remember, and again, I won't reference the scene in particular, but Wendy, the eldest daughter goes through something fairly traumatic. Um, and I knew I had to write this scene. I knew it took place in the book. Uh, I knew it was coming, but I kept putting it off. And I was like, oh, I'll just write this other flashback instead, or I'll, you know, whatever was um, at the forefront of my mind at the time. And I remember I was living in Iowa City where I live now, but I was a, I was a graduate student and I was, it was like 9.30 at night. And I was like, I'm just gonna go to this coffee shop. It was like an undergrad coffee shop and I knew they would all be gone. And I was like, I'm gonna go there and turn off my internet and just write this scene. Um, which was the only time I like physically removed myself from my, my workspace. Um, just because I think I needed to you know, I, I wanted to give it the sort of respect that it deserved and um, explore it in a way that that felt um, sufficient. Um, so yeah, I mean, certain things were more difficult to write than others. Um, and again, you know, it's it's another sort of exercise in empathy, just kind of trying to imagine what it, which is is hard too as a writer, like how, how would it feel to go through a you know a really terrible experience. Um, so yeah, it, it and and that's very different than writing, you know, David and Marilyn go on a date. Like that's super fun. Writing people flirting is a delight <laughs> because it, it just seems right themselves, and um, it's you know propulsive and kinetic and fun. But um, but yeah, this is you know this is a novel about fifty years of a family, so bad things are inevitably going to happen. So it was it was definitely a challenge sometimes. Yeah. Oh, that's an, that's an. I just had that question today a little bit of like gosh, I wonder if it's hard for her to do some of these things to her characters. <laughs> so yeah, you feel like the evil puppeteer or something. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that wasn't my question, but you answered my question, so thank oh, you. Okay. Um, someone else asks that, speaking of emotional moments, I was struck by, and this is a live person watching, so thank you. I was struck by Ryan's depression journey and treatments or lack thereof. I don't want to spoil anything, but what research or other work did you undertake to make Ryan's plight 100% believable? That, that's a good question. Um, you know, so I was in uh, social work school. I was a graduate student uh, planning to be a therapist when I started writing this book. Um, and I found myself, well, I found myself sitting in class writing a novel instead of paying attention <laughs> to my lectures. But um, I found myself with all of these very expensive, very theoretical textbooks um, that describe depression and anxiety and all of these, you know, very serious psychological conditions in a really clinical way, which of course you have to do. And of course, you know, 
you need clinical training in order to be able to treat people. But I was thinking about how unhelpful that can be. You know, it's, it's, and I think, you know, Liza, who is a, who is a psychologist says something to that effect. Like there's nothing in her, her textbooks that, you know, can help her, help her husband, um, her boyfriend. Um, and so I, I did sort of want to play with that. The fact that, you know, a lot of people with mental illness don't have a really, you know, pat circumstance that can be easily fixed by, you know, treatment A, B, or C. Um, and, you know, Ryan is, partnered with a psychologist, his, you know, father-in-law is a physician and, you know, there's still not, you know, a, a really clear way to help him. Um, so I was interested in exploring that, like, uh, that was just something that um, struck me as someone who was planning on becoming a therapist, how these textbook things manifest themselves in, in real life. Um, so, I kind of became, alongside Liza, I kind of became interested in, you know, what do you do? And, you know, how can you have all of this clinical knowledge and still not be able to help the people that you love? Um, so I was very interested in the, the gap between those things. Great, thank you for that answer. We have another question from Facebook. So thank you to this person. Um, this person says first, I love this book so much, exclamation point. Uh, my sister lives in Oak Park and your descriptions were spot on. Did you make a conscious decision to use settings you know intimately or did it sort of pan out that way without your conscious planning? Ooh, that is good. That is a great question. Um, so my, I'm a, well, I'm a very lazy writer. That is my kind of self-deprecating answer. <laughs> Um, and I, so I did choose settings that were intimately familiar to me. Uh, so Oak Park, I grew up there. Um, it was, it felt like a sort of quintessential Midwestern suburb. It reminds me a lot of different sort of arms of, of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Like it's, you know, it, it, it's a fairly affluent, um, historically, significant and beautiful place. Um, and with those things come a lot of hypocrisy and drama and, um, you know, not as, not as pretty things. Um, so I chose it for, you know, narrative reasons, but I also chose it because I, you know, I know which streets run, you know, one way. And I know, I knew that if I were, you know, describing Grace walking to school, I wouldn't have her make a wrong turn because that has ended up being, the thing that I get a lot of angry emails from readers about, uh, well, no, I, it actually has not because I did my homework, but <laughs> um, every once in a while, I'll get an email from a reader who's like, actually, that would not be the route they would have taken to the airport. And I'm like, actually, that is the, like, you know, I'm, so I'm able to kind of have a, a defense prepared. Um, so I did it for that reason. Um, but part of the book is also set in Iowa City, where, as I said, I live now, but I didn't live there at the time that I wrote it. Um, I had applied to graduate school here um, and I was working on this book and I, I almost did it. I did it sort of unconsciously, but I did it kind of aspirationally. I was like, oh, wouldn't that be fun if I you know, set some of my book here and then ended up, up moving there. Um, and then thankfully the book got, you know, I submitted it to my editor after I had lived in Iowa City for a while. So I was able to kind of finesse those like Dubuque Street runs east, west, north, south, whatever. Um, so it's a twofold answer. I am lazy and also defensive. <laughs> I guess that is, that is my rationale for, for choosing a familiar place. <laughs> I love the honesty. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I will yeah. challenge you because I don't think anyone who's read this would describe you as a lazy author, lazy writer. <laughs> 
full of sparkling detail and as one person writes here, crackling dialogue. Um, and they want to know, was this dialogue an intentional narrative choice or did it sort of happen organically? If you want to talk about voice. Mm. Yeah, I love talking about dialogue. Dialogue is my very favorite thing to write and it always has been. Um, and it's always come quite easily to me um, in a way that, again, maybe it's because I'm a sociopath or because I'm nosy or because I'm constantly just listening to other people. But, um, you know, I have my students do this sort of ethically murky exercise every semester where I send them out into the wild and have them eavesdrop on a conversation. I have them pick someone that they don't know. Um, so it's someone on the bus or someone, you know, next to them at a coffee shop and transcribe um, the conversation as they're hearing it. Um, we don't use the transcribed conversations for anything, but I have them do that just to sort of attune themselves to conversational rhythms and to how human beings actually speak. Um, something I've heard from readers about this book, people notice there's a lot of um, fragmented speech in this book. There's a lot of uh, M dashes, which are one of my favorite punctuation marks, but um, there's a lot of, you know, characters interrupting themselves and, you know, characters trailing off characters, you know, going down one train and then hopping on another. Um, and I did that because that, I mean, that's I, how many times did I just do that as I was, as I was speaking that sent that, you know, several sentences. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, render that as accurately as I possibly could. Um, and so dialogue is everything to me and dialogue can do so much wonderful work in a novel. Um, and so I essentially in this book, anything that I could put in scene, I did in, is, as opposed to exposition or, or um, flashback, which, um, you know, half the book is flashback. So that's why I'm, I'm sort of stumbling, but I mean, uh, flashback within exposition. Um, because I, yeah, again, I, I wanted that sort of fly on the wall sensation and being a fly on the wall means you're overhearing a lot of, a lot of conversation. So it worked out nicely um, that the book I wrote had a lot of dialogues. I have so much fun with it. Um, so it was, you know, I guess it was both kind of an innate thing and a, a, an artistic choice. Very cool. I know, speaking of dialogue too, um, I think I read somewhere and, you know, dialogue is so interesting and it can have a person's words can have so many meanings behind them and there's a duplicity sure. sometimes. And I think I read in an interview you saying something about how you're interested in passive aggressiveness. And then, and there's a lot of like Midwestern, in Minnesota, we have Minnesota nice. Yes. I'm passive aggressive. Do you want to talk about your interest in that at all? Sure. Yeah. You know, I wanted to write a Midwestern novel in part, again, because I'm lazy and that's all that I'm from the Midwest and that's what <laughs> I know. But it's also a space that doesn't get explored as much in fiction as coastal, as, as New York or LA, or um, it's sort of a flyover space where, you know, people don't dwell very often. And I, you know, I'm very, very conscious of my own Midwestern tendencies and the fact I'm, I can be quite passive aggressive and um, quite passive. Um, and so coming, you know, when I, I came to graduate school, I was, I was but not, not by a long shot, the only Midwesterner, but there were a lot of people from New York or LA. Um, 
and then there was me who was just sort of like, you know, and there was a joke about me when I was a grad student that all my stories were very long. None of them had plots and they were all about really nice people who really loved each other. <laughs> so I kind of just harnessed that as, as my aesthetic. Um, and, you know, everyone in this book does like each other to some degree, but they're also, they like each other in a very Midwestern way, which means they're probably not going to tell you if, you know, like, and Violet is a, you know, a pretty classic example. Violet is an incredibly tightly wound woman with a highly curated, highly, you know, controlled life um, who will very rarely come out and say why she's actually mad at you or why she's not me, like, but, you know, her, one of her sisters or her, um, and that makes communication difficult. And I found, you know, that I found the difficulty of that as a, as a, Midwesterner in my in my own family. So I did kind of want to play with that. Um, and I thought it would be some I'm glad it was recognizable to you as a as a Minnesotan. Because um, I wanted, you know, I wanted Mid Midwesterners to feel seen for their passive aggression, but also for other <laughs> more favorable attributes. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think and I hope other I can only speak for me in this virtual setting, but it was definitely a novel that made me feel very seen. And I connected with the characters and their lives and the beauty and the brokenness a lot. And we have a question about which of the sisters do you think you connect to or are the most similar to? Ooh, um, so I give my sort of diplomatic parent answer to this question, which is like, I love everyone equally and I relate to all of them equally, but I kind of do. Um, that's a sort of simplistic answer, but I, all of these, all of the, the the daughters in this novel are me and completely aren't me. And so there were there were times when I was writing when I identified very strongly with each of them. You know, different different times. Um, so I would say, you know, and this is a sort of very general answer, but um, like I, I can relate very like Violet is a very sort of type A. She likes things to be a certain way. She's, you know, um, and I'm I'm like, you know, I'm that's an unattractive attribute of my own that I, you know, I can identify with. Um Grace, I, I really, you know, I related to Grace a lot, I think, because I at the time I started writing this book was floundering so much in my professional and personal life, but I really related to this, you know, the concept that at 23 or 24, we're supposed to know what we're doing or what we want from the world or, you know, how, you know, we're supposed to make these huge choices without understanding the magnitude of them or understanding, you know, uh, you know, where we'll end up. Um, so I very much related to her vulnerability. Um, like I said, I was a, a graduate student you know, training to be a therapist. And so I related to Liza's, you know, mm -hmm. penchant to psychoanalyze everyone around her. Um, and Wendy, you know, I say that Wendy is the least like me, um, but she's not, Wendy is kind of, I think Wendy is what would happen if I removed all of my filters. <laughs> so she was a delight to write. It was like, Wendy's like the way more fun version of me. Um, but uh, but that was also sort of aspirational because Wendy is Wendy says what she thinks when she thinks it and I am so not like that in any arena of my life so um, so yeah I, I sort of related to different parts of them at, at different times and I feel different affection and different loyalty for them when I you know revisit the book or when I'm asked questions like this and then think about them so yeah it's a that's what I was gonna ask too how maybe how have you connected with them 
in different ways now that it's, you know, it's been two plus or about two years since you first published it, longer I'm sure since you finished it. Um, are there different ways you're surprised by in how you connect with them? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm surprised by how defensive I have become of the Sorensen daughters. Um, and I think I do a lot of, um, particularly during, you know, since, since the pandemic began, I've been, I zoom into people's book clubs very often, um, which is really fun. And it's a really delightful way to connect with readers. But I've, I so frequently get people who say either I hated Wendy or I hated Violet mm -hmm. so much. Um, and I get this very like maternal, like, don't talk about my kids that way. Um, and I didn't feel this way when I was writing. I just felt like, oh, they're, you know, there's going through their lives, they're making bad choices, they're, they're fictional characters. Um, and I think the more conversations I have with people about them and the more that they start to sort of feel, you know, you publish a book and it's suddenly out of your hands. And so your book and everything in it is just, it's like sending a kid off to school. Like there, it's just, you know, free flying and it's um, beyond your control. So I think since that has happened, I have a little bit more objectivity um, and I think more, hopefully more empathy for my characters. And so when people say like, you know, Violet's so awful and she's so cruel and I'm sort of like, but wait, let's take a step back and you know, examine where she's coming from or what has, you know, what in her life has has caused her to be the, the way that she is. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I've I've become both more objective and um, and less. Um, I also like to think about what they would be doing in quarantine. That's a, a new game that, that I've been playing recently. I have not no like great insights, but uh. okay. That I well now I'm interested in that question. That's kind of if you wanted to share what one of them would be doing, I would love to hear it. You don't have to go through all of them, but. I mean, I was just thinking like, when I sort of feel like this way in my own life, like Grace's life would not be that different. <laughs> she would just sort of like be in, her, <laughs> be in her little space watching Netflix and like not talking to anyone, which I, I can relate to. <laughs> um, but I was thinking, you know, it's funny. I actually wrote a scene in this novel. Uh, I wrote a 9-11 thread in this novel in an early draft uh, because I felt like I was actually, I had a conversation with one of my teachers about how you can't write a multi-generational story and not touch on major cultural events. Um, I ultimately decided that you could do that and I did do that intentionally. Um, but I had written this 9-11 thread um, where David post 9-11 becomes paralytically anxious and mm -hmm. starts sort of almost like doomsday prepping um, because he is this sort of, you know, this man of science who wants to protect his family. And it was, it was a really, you know, that was one of those scenes that like really helped me to intimately get to know a character. Cause I was sort of like, what would this person do in the wake of something, you know, a massive, massive, terrible event. Um, and so it's kind of a, anyway, just sort of a fun characterization game, but I was thinking about, you know, I don't know what David would be. I was thinking about, um, you know, who would be really vigilant about wearing a mask or, you know, A, B, or C. <laughs> I feel like all the Sorensons would wear their masks, but. Um, who would make them by hand versus who would buy the Dior mask. Right, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes. But that does tie in excellently. It's like you're anticipating these questions. Somebody is very curious about, you know, like how, and you, you touched on this, how long did it take you to write the most fun we ever had? 
And then I'm interested in how did you, I think I read in the acknowledgements that at one point it was like an eight or 900 page manuscript or just what you said now about, you know, cutting a plot line. How do you decide what gets in the final story and where to end it and all those things? Yeah, yeah. Um, there is so much more to writing a book than I, than I realized when I just sort of blithely started typing. Um, so this book took me about five years all told to, you know, from first sentence to, um, find, I guess, finding my agent. Uh, and then we went through several drafts from, from then. But um, I came to graduate school with an 813 page manuscript, um, which if you want to be just like the worst person on the earth, <laughs> do that, like come to a fiction, you know, a fiction MFA program with your tome and be like, hey, do you wanna read? You know, it's just like the most awful. <laughs> um, people were very kind to me, I don't know why, but. Um, <laughs> but it was it out for you in the end. <laughs> yes, no, I, <laughs> I was very fortunate, yes. <laughs> but yes, that does sound. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a good look. <laughs> I'll read my book. Right. I know. It's just like a horrible, and I, I didn't, um, I ended up not workshopping my novel. I, I workshopped like 40 pages of it, but I found a, um, a professor who was very, very generous and just worked on it with me one-on-one, -on -one, which was what I needed. I think I needed that sort of, you know, really, really keen focus. Um, but this book has, you know, over that time it expanded and contracted from, I think at its peak, it was 920 pages, which was like a very dark day of my life when I, because I had turned it, I was supposed to cut a bunch of pages and I thought I had done that. And this is like a, this is the like most plotless, boring, dramatic tale you will ever hear. <laughs> but I, I turned it into my agent and she called me and she said, I thought you were going to cut a hundred pages. This book just grew 200. Um, and it, there was something with the font and I literally started crying. It was just a nightmare. Um, but I kind of had, to, you know, in that expansion and contraction, I was sort of figuring out what the shape of the story was supposed to be and what, you know, which things held the test of time. And, you know, I was still interested in when I took a break and, and came back to the book after sitting on it for a few months. Um, but also like what, you know, what narrative threads sort of cohered, what felt, you know, uh, you know, like extra and, and, and not necessary. Um, and so I got really, really strategic and st I'm trying to think if I can show you this without seeming like a serial killer. Um, this board on my wall, if you can see that is, um, it is, it's a storyboard of, of the most fun we ever had. Um, so after I had a draft of this novel, I, it's also the size of like a, it's like six feet tall. It's quite large, but, um, after I had a draft, I mapped it out visually so I could just sort of see, you know, what are my preoccupations as a writer that I can't see when I'm just paging through this novel that I've utterly lost perspective on. Um, but also kind of, you know, which character is getting a lot of page time versus who's, you know, being ignored. Is that okay? Is that intentional? Should it not be, you know, A, B, or C? So, um, yeah, I very, very fortunately had, as I said, you know, my thesis advisor in graduate school, then my agent, and then my editor, who were really, really helpful, just in in kind of boiling down this story to its essential parts. Which I, this isn't as dramatic with the paperback because it's not as big. When I pick up the hardcover, it's like this brick. Yeah, you have. <laughs> there it is. It's a large object. Yeah. Um, so it's funny to say that I like cut all of this stuff, and it's still a six hundred page novel, but. Um, 
it was kind of a, yeah, it might fall on you and like harm you. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have to be careful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a, an evolution, um, that I, I could not, I, I, I genuinely don't think I could have done by myself. I was very, very lucky to find a handful of really, really great readers early on. That's wonderful. We're very happy you did. We've got a few other questions about, yeah, a few other questions about writing and the publishing industry. Um, we've got quite a few writers in our community, which is amazing. Um, so someone from online wrote, hello, thank you. Uh, she or he or they said, you are one of my favorite writers these days. Oh. And some of my others, Madeline Miller and Richard Russo, blurbed your debut. Wow, how cool, small world. Uh, they said, how does a writer go about getting their cover quotes? Ooh, it, that's a great question. It's such a miserable process. Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember um, they're called blurbs in the industry. And I think just that's probably not like a trade secret. Um, but uh, I remember my editor, Lee Boudreau at Doubleday, who's just like the best saying, I was just in despair because I was like, I don't know any famous people. And I, you know, I can't ask someone to read a 600 page novel. And how are we going to get any quotes to go on the cover? And she was like, Claire, everyone hates blurbs. It's okay. Like, we're going to get through this together. They're the worst. Um, so you essentially just have to, I like cold cold called, I sent out this manuscript to a bunch of strangers, like writers that I really admired um, with just sort of a love letter essentially, which is kind of a terrifying, you know, and probably not very attractive approach. Um, uh, and so I got some blurbs that way, people who were really, you know, really generous and um, took the time to read the 600 page novel of a woman they've never met. Um, but I also, so Rick Russo was a, a teacher of mine and was very, you know, very kind and and read my book. Um, after the fact, Margot Livesey was, was one of my teachers at the Iowa Writers Workshop and has, you know, I think read this book multiple times, was incredibly generous. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag. And then you have, you know, the sort of um, wonderful happenstantial things where person X gives your book to famous person why and you're sort of like that person has my you know and it's incredible I'm still I, I do not cease to be starstruck and really dorky when that happens so um it's a you, you you kind of cobble it together and I remember just at the outset feeling like no there's going to be no quotes on my book I'm going to be the first book that gets published that has zero quotes on the cover and thankfully that was not the case but it was it was hard it was it's an awkward uh yeah it's an awkward process <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have two questions from that. And one, I think um, a lot of people ask at these kinds of events, which is just what advice do you have for writers out there? Yeah. Um, so my very sort of, this is not the answer that anyone who asked that question is looking for, but it is, I think, the truest answer, which is just keep writing um, and write every day if you can, even if it's just a sentence or two. Um, and also this is my sort of, you know, the, my therapisty side coming out, but be nice to yourself. Um, I feel like that is, and I, I have to remind myself of this. I can be incredibly generous with my students and my colleagues and my peers. And, you know, um, and with myself, I'm sort of like, that was terrible writing. Why aren't you writing enough? Why aren't, you know, and, uh, and I think we all have a tendency to do that. And that can cripple you as a writer completely. That can, you know, absolutely hinder any forward motion and I've, I've fallen prey to that myself. Um, 
so those are my two kind of Pollyanna answers. Um, and my third, which is also not especially like groundbreaking, is to read as much as you can. Um, and I think more specifically, identify writers who make you want to read or make you want to write rather. Um, so I found I was probably 16 when I realized this. Laura, the short story, well, she's a novelist as well, but primarily short story writer, Lori Moore is someone who, if I read, 10 pages that she's written, I suddenly moved to write. And I've known that, you know, I'm luckily have known that my whole, like, she's just someone who I find incredibly, she turns something on in my brain. I feel the same way about Alice Monroe. Um, and so if you can find, you know, just a handful of writers that you can pick up a book and open to page 47 and read a few sentences and sort of fall in love with, with the craft again, because your writing will be better if you're having fun. That's my other, you know, kind of big piece of advice, which you can't, you can't force fun, but if you, you know, I find my best writing happens when I'm really enjoying myself. And that usually comes from, you know, having been inspired or having been um, moved, you know, moved to like, I have to get this out, you know, I have to, I have to get this on the page. Um, so those are my kind of, I guess those are my, my big picture because everyone's writing process is different and everyone's writing life is different. Everyone's life life is different so those are my those are my general answers i thought they were great and i'll say your book <laughs> is inspiring me to get writing and i think it's one oh, i'll revisit which i don't say lightly about a 535 page <laughs> that is a high compliment thank you yeah, let me just stand in for our audience here and fangirl a little bit but really <laughs> it was quite powerful for me so Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. So along with other, we have one other writing question. Sure. We have a couple more writing questions. <laughs> so I promise they're not just from me, no. um, <laughs> but from Facebook. Thank you, Facebook user. Um, how has COVID affected your writing and your reading? Good question. Um, COVID, I, I will be completely honest and say that I did not organically write a word for about the first six months of the pandemic. Um, and I, I feel that it's important to be honest about that because I feel like there are the people who are like, I've been so productive during quarantine and I wrote six books and I learned how to make a sourdough starter and like do all these things. And like, I was very much for many, many months, just not able to do that. And I think a lot of people, you know, so I feel, I feel like it's important for me to be honest about that. Um, that being said, COVID didn't, you know, quarantine didn't, my life didn't change that much. You know, I, I, um, I work from home to begin with. So it's, it's not like my, my circumstances changed that much, but, um, I think, you know, since the fall though, I have gotten, once it was kind of like, okay, this is going to be going on for a while and it already had been, but, um, I really just start, you know, routines have become my greatest friend. I also have a dog who is, behind me you can't see her she's very small but um she has been kind of a great you know dogs are a great they're great for every reason because they're the best but um she's been this sort of wonderful little metronome where it's like I get up at the same time every day I go for 74 walks every day I you know everything is kind of on this this really rigid schedule and that has been really helpful for me um the last couple of months have been incredibly productive for me um but again I feel it's important that I say that those those months came on the heels of you know, half a year of, of nothing, like literally nothing, um, and not for lack of trying. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it, 
Yeah, it's it's had a, a manyfold effect. And my reading life has blossomed hugely. I'm reading like a crazy person, which is so great. It's such a, you know, such a gift um, to be able to, especially when we're not allowed to move around the world too much or see a lot of the people that we would really love to be seeing. It's really lovely to be able to go inhabit other spaces, whether, you know, whether they're exotic or, or not. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for your honesty and answer to that question. Sure, yeah. Appreciate it. Um, that does segue really well into what are you currently reading? Do you have any recent favorites? Ooh, yes. Um, I've been reading so much. So I just started last night, An American Marriage, um, which mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really, really, really loving. Um, prior to that, um, oh, I read My Sister, The Serial Killer, um, which was such a delight. And people have been telling me to read it for like two years. Um, and it was just one that that eluded my, my radar. Um, I am also rereading, speaking of Midwesterners, um, the writer Dan Chan, uh, who I've always loved his work. Um, I'm, and I'm, I'm a big rereader. So I'm, re I'm sort of rereading his entire bibliography um, for the first time in like 10 years, which has been really, really fun to kind of go back to books that you loved and, and a writer that you, you know, you know, you trust and you know that you're in good hands. So um, those are my most recent reads, um, yes are awesome. For any book clubs listening, Washington County does have a book club kit for My Sister, the Serial Killer. Oh, great. <laughs> it's so good. And it's also like the most, like, it's a tiny book. It's like the size of like a note card, um, which is just a fun, it's like fun to be holding a tiny book instead of, <laughs> this is just an aesthetic preference, instead of holding a giant tome, like the most fun we ever had. Yeah. <laughs> right. But if you want, for those of you who really connected with sisterly bonds and all their yeah, you and complication you really might want to pick that one up after you finish the most fun we ever had yes so. like a palate cleanser or something <laughs> yeah. of sorts yeah a little, a little dark in a different way i think very so. much so yeah well we have time for just about one more quick question i think so let me just look at my list you know this is another good one we got from our from a from someone who wrote in and it's similar to a question I asked before but what advice might you give for an aspiring MFA student you've taught in MFA or in writing programs and you have your MFA so yeah um well my very practical piece of advice I make my undergraduate students take an oath which this is probably also ethically murky um please don't go into debt for an art degree and I say this as a person who teaches in the arts and believes in them more than anything else. Um, so apply to fully funded MFA programs if you if you can. There are a lot of them. Um, that's my very practical advice. Um, for aspiring MFA students, I mean, uh, I think for submitting, submit your your very best work, um, and that often doesn't mean you know your entire novel. Um, I can very very confidently say I. I mean I. I wouldn't say this about a published novel, I guess, but when I was working on this book, there were times when not all the pages were of equal quality. <laughs> so, um, so when you're submitting, submit your best your best pages. Um, it also helps, I think, to go into an MFA program if possible with some idea of what you want to work on. Um, be that a novel, be that a short story collection, or be that you know, I just want to hone my craft, but go in with some sense of direction. Um, 
because it goes by very fast. It's, you know, programs are usually two, between one and three years um, and the time goes by in this sort of whirlwind. So if you have something to kind of hitch on to, um, that is that can be really grounding and really helpful. I was, I, as I said, I, I came into um, my MFA program with a novel draft and that really helped me, even though I was, you know, I didn't workshop it. I was, I was writing stories for most of my time as a grad student. Um, it really helped me to kind of know my goal is to leave here with, you know, X, Y, or Z. So those are my few pieces of advice. Well, it's great advice from a great writer. So we are Thank really thankful so for it and so <laughs> thankful for your time. And I know all of us in Washington County and Melsa and beyond are so stoked about whatever you're cooking up next. So oh, thank you. We've got the HBO adaptation coming up of the most fun we ever had. And I heard rumors of a second novel, maybe. So me too. Yeah. <laughs> I heard those rumors as well. Yes. <laughs> well, Fingers thanks crossed. for sharing your beautiful novel with us as well as your time. We really oh, appreciate it. Very much my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for such lovely moderation. This has been really, really fun. That wraps up our Washington County Library event with Claire Lombardo. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with H.W. Brands. Two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist H.W. Brands is one of the foremost American Studies scholars writing today, as well as one of the most prolific. His latest is The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggles for American Freedom. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.